Welcome to Talking Tax, a Bloomberg Tax Podcast. In this series, we're talking all about tax reform, the proposed changes that you should be aware of, the implications for both practitioners and taxpayers, and how we expect the process to play out going forward. I'm your host, Allison Versprill, a reporter at Bloomberg Tax. Today, we're joined by two tax professionals from Ernst & Young's tax policy team. I will now kick it over to my co-host for the day, Justin Schaefer, a partner at EY who will introduce our panelists. Allison, thanks so much. We are more than excited to be a part of this series with Bloomberg and certainly look forward to a great conversation on all of the congressional activity we've seen in the last week around tax reform. My name is Justin Schaefer. I'm a partner in our international tax practice and EY's U.S. tax reform leader. I'm excited to have with us today Mr. Michael Mandaka, EY's co-national tax director. Michael has served in several U.S. Treasury Department roles, including the Assistant Secretary for Tax Policy, the Deputy Assistant Treasury Secretary for International Tax Affairs, and as the Deputy International Tax Counsel. In these roles, Michael represented the United States at various international forums, including the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD, as well as in the negotiation of various tax treaties and other international agreements. I'm also joined by our America's tax policy leader, Ms. Kathy Koch. Kathy served three and a half years on the Senate Finance Committee as tax chief. She was also chief policy advisor to the Senate Majority Leader for Tax and Economics. She led business outreach for the leader and the Democratic Caucus and led all tax and economic policy initiatives as well as strategy and communication. With that as a backdrop, let's dive right into our questions. Kathy, let's first start with you. Uh, we saw a number of, uh, or a lot of activity on the Hill last week, uh, namely with the, the Senate releasing their tax proposal, uh, but we also saw some activity from the House Ways and Means Committee uh, with several amendments associated with the House bill that they put forth. Uh, can you take us through that and give us a, a, an understanding of what happened uh, with the House Ways and Means Committees and their amendments? Sure, and thank you, Justin. The House Ways and Means Committee really acted expeditiously to process this bill. They put out a mark, they accepted amendments, and they, you know, kind of are set, I think, to pass it in committee as early as Thursday. There were several big amendments that passed, but otherwise, you know, thematically, the bill, you know, retained its character throughout the process. The amendments that were made that were noticeable were they, you know, included some tax increases on, you know, on our multinational companies. Number one, they increased the proposed one-time transition tax rate from 14 to 14% from 12% for accumulated foreign earnings and to 7% from 5% for illiquid assets. And those, those increases are noticeable. I, I, you know, I think that's kind of the dial turning to make the ends meet on the revenue goals that are, you know, a necessary part of this process. In addition, they amended prior amendments on the excise tax for inbounds. That kind of went back and forth and back and forth. First, it raised $154 billion, then it raised $7 billion, and I think we settled in the upper 80s as they took out cost of goods sold and then put back in other, other components. But that, that may have been the single most discussed provision, at least as far as my clients were concerned, and certainly where the most action happened in amendments. The other noticeable provision 
that was taken out of the House bill was they eliminated the non-qualified deferred compensation provision. That certainly attracted a lot of attention from our clients. And there was a couple other provisions. They added a provision to require research and experimental expenses to be amortized over five years as opposed to expense immediately under current law. They further reduced the pass-through rate for small pass-throughs and then eliminated a proposal to subject a passive investor's share of pass-through income to self-employment tax. And finally, they delayed repeal the estate and generation-skipping transfer tax by one year to 2024. Ms. Kathy, that's a, a great over, overview, and, and certainly the increases on the one-time transition tax to, to 14% and 7%, as you alluded to, uh, it certainly seems that they really are dialing that number in on, on the revenue component. Michael, anything to add on the House amendments? No, I think, uh, again, as Kathy mentioned, that uh, we saw some changes, some were to get more support politically, some were to make the revenue work. That's going to continue to be the theme throughout this. I think we have now the outlines of the bills, both on the House and the Senate side. Changes are going to have to be made, but they're going to be driven by the expediencies of getting the votes necessary and making the revenue numbers work. All right. Well, thank you both uh, for that really important update on what's happening on the House side. Um, And so now that we've covered those changes, let's shift gears to the Senate proposal and how that plan uh, diverges from the House bill. It's my understanding that, Michael, you have some thoughts on that? That's right. There are a couple of things to keep in mind. Focusing on the business aspects. Recall that the House uh, Ways and Means proposal begins the reduction in the corporate rate immediately from 35 to uh, 20 on day one, starting in 2018. The Senate finance proposal would push that out one year, so the drop to 20% would not begin until 2019. With respect to the flow-through provisions, there are other differences. Recall that the House Ways and Means uh, Committee approved a bill that would impose a top rate of 25% on passive business activity income earned through a flow-through entity with some percentage of active income also being subject to that 25% cap. The Senate did it differently. They have a deduction, essentially, with respect to that income of 17.4%, which works out to a top rate of about 32% for such income earned through flow-through, so a higher percentage at the top than the House bill allows for. Also, with respect to the uh, limitations on the deduction of interest, the House bill uh, is more generous. Uh, It's a little bit complicated how you get there, but the Senate bill essentially uses as its uh, base uh, an income item that is uh, inclusive of deductions for depreciation and amortization and therefore provides a lower base for limiting your interest deduction. So important to focus on that if you're in an industry that has significant depreciation and amortization. Your ability to deduct interest may be less under the Senate proposal and under uh, the House. Uh, going through some other uh, uh, differences on the international side, General policy is the same between the two, a focus on uh, income earned uh, overseas from intangibles being subject to increased U.S. tax and also limitations on deductions to farm persons from uh, the U.S., so-called base eroding payments out of the U.S., but a couple of very important differences between the two. The Senate bill has a so-called carrot-and-stick approach with respect to the taxation of intangible assets. It does have this provision that essentially has 
U.S. taxation imposed on income from intangibles earned by the foreign subsidiaries of U.S. Uh, companies, but it also has a sort of patent box. It's a complicated provision with a lot of moving parts, but essentially what it says is if you have intangibles here in the U.S., and you're getting returns from those intangibles overseas, you'll be subject to a lower tax on that income back in the U.S., and it modifies and to some extent turns off the rules that might subject to tax transfers back of intangibles that are overseas to the U.S. So it's really incentivizing the development and transfer back to the U.S. of intangibles by having these two provisions, turning off the tax when they come back uh, with respect to the transfer, and giving you a lower rate here in the U.S. with respect to returns to those uh, assets. So, again, general policy is the same between the House and the Senate. There are these uh, differences between how some provisions come in and out of the law and what the scope of them might be. But I think overall, while I've gone through the differences, there's a lot in common between these two bills on the business side. And keep that in mind, that's going to be necessary that that cohesion between the two stay in place if we are going to get a bill done in the timeline that the Republicans have laid out, which is by year end. And I guess we'll see how this all plays out uh, in the markup this week and and see how how much cohesion there continues to be with those two proposals. Kathy, did you have anything to add about the differences between the uh, House and Senate versions? No, I don't. I just think it's it's striking how similar the themes are. And the House and the Senate are usually not that unified thematically. Again, as Michael described, there's a lot of differences in individual provisions, but thematically, they seem to agree, and that will increase the possibility that this passes in on the timeline that Michael mentioned. Michael, let's stay with you now on uh, many of the provisions within the, the House and Senate bill. Uh, as you all, uh, as you, both you and Kathy mentioned, uh, we've seen thematically the, the same, you know, kind of outline or framework associated with the bills, uh, but there are some differences, as you noted, Michael. When we look at these differences for the House versus the Senate bill, are there specific provisions contained within either that really differentially impact or affect uh, various sectors? I would say, again, there are differences in the international uh, provisions that could have uh, sector differences, although, again, I think many of the differences are specific enough that it's really going to be a company-by-company determination. And while we focused on the differences, I think it's important to make sure we all understand that the bills, as Kathy mentioned and as we've discussed, have a lot in common, significant reduction to the U.S., statutory corporate rates, significant reduction in the maximum tax rate that can apply to flow-through business income, significant deductions uh, with respect to investments, that is, immediate expensing for, uh, for five years, a move on the international side to a territorial system, limitations on deductions that may erode the U.S. tax base, and significant changes to the taxation of uh, intangible assets. But keep in mind, Big ticket items are very similar between the two bills, and I would highlight especially the move to a territorial system, the drop in the rate to 20%, and the difference in how flow-through income is, is taxed. And if you want to look at this on a sector basis, overall, I would expect, and again, it's going to vary greatly by company, this is going to have benefits across most, if not all, sectors because of those big ticket changes, the drop in the corporate rate, immediate expensing, territoriality. 
Yes, there may be some companies, because of their particular circumstances, may not do as well as others. But I do think we will see sector effects to the positive uh, in most, if not all, cases. Michael, thanks for that overview. It, it certainly seems that there's several provisions that we all need to be watching, uh, regardless of our sector. Uh, Kathy, I know that you have some thoughts here. Uh, can you can you uh, expand upon those? Yeah, most you know a lot of the differences between the bills involve kind of smaller sectoral issues. For instance, the bonding provisions that are eliminated in the House bill are not touched in the Senate bill. Private activity bonds. This is a huge deal for infrastructure and for public-private partnerships. That was a surprise to me, actually. Work opportunity tax credit helps, you know, some kind of uh, employers, not others. That is removed in the House bill, retained in the Senate bill. Some of the energy provisions removed in the House bill, very, very important to the renewables. They are not touched in the Senate bill. A deferred comp uh, touched in the Senate bill was removed in the House bill. And then finally, I think some of the individual benefits on, you know, what's, you know, medical expense deductions and things like that, and the property tax deduction, which is kind of retained in the House. These are differences that are not insurmountable, and they're smaller than the kind of provisions that Michael was discussing, but they tend to be politically sticky issues. So it will be interesting to see how they litigate those differences. Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating overview, and I think what really comes through to me in terms of the the theme of those comments from Kathy is that uh, it depends on which bill that you look at, right? Uh, there's there's obviously a number of provisions that Kathy just highlighted that were included in the House bill, not included in the uh, Senate bill, and so I think it's a bit of wait and see as we really figure out uh, or watch how this process unfolds between the House and the Senate going forward. I completely agree. And I think as we're talking about, you know, diving deeper into these specific provisions, uh, so money is always important, how much money the government is making off of these different proposals. Um, and so I wanted to flip this back to Kathy and give you a chance to talk about the revenue considerations of the proposals that are included, or the provisions, I mean, that are included in the Senate proposal. In the Senate proposal, we have a very interesting set of revenue provisions. The Senate proposal, as it stood going into the markup, was a $1.495.7 trillion tax reduction. That is, you know, to me, someone with some experience trying to make the numbers work, that was a pretty deft move, I think. Um, the House bill, as it stood coming off the floor, is $1.436 trillion tax cut. The, the limit here, these things have to be a $1.5 trillion tax cut or less. They cannot go over that or the bill will lose some of the protections of the reconciliation. Now, in the Senate bill, the, you know, the one point, you know, essentially $5 trillion tax cut kind of spreads out amongst individuals, businesses, pass-throughs, and foreign operations of companies operating in the U.S. in an interesting way. If you kind of reshuffle the numbers from what you see in the revenue table, you can see that individuals get about a $618 billion tax cut. Small businesses are treated in an interesting way. There's a big tax cut, $459 billion in pass-through rate, but then they have a kind of a, a new provision to disallow losses for some pass-throughs, and if you net those two out, pass-throughs are looking at about a $335, $336 billion tax cut. To businesses, domestic operations, $645 billion tax cut. This is all seeming kind of kind of even-handed, and the foreign operations of firms are getting a $104 billion tax increase. 
Now, like it or hate it, that is a politically appealing profile for this bill, and it is a little different than the House bill, which gives a bigger tax cut to small businesses and a smaller tax cut to individuals on average. Well, and I think that's a a great overview because obviously these revenue considerations are especially important when trying to figure out this puzzle of tax reform. Um, And I wonder, Michael, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think what's interesting in all this is that all of this is moving so quickly. I don't think people have had a chance yet to focus on some of the high-level issues that really should be driving the debate. We've all seen discussions around, uh, I'd say, more uh, more macro issues uh, and uh, discussions of economic impacts, etc. But it does pay, as Kathy went through, to look at how this bill breaks down when you talk about individuals, when you talk about businesses in corporate form, when you talk about uh, businesses operating in flow-through form, and you get a sense of the differences between the bills and where the benefits of the tax cuts are flowing. And that should really be a big part of the political debate, but it hasn't been so far. And I'm sure we'll see that evolve over the next few weeks. Um, So I'll kick this back over to Justin to talk about our last question. Great. Thanks, Allison. So, Michael, uh, we've certainly seen uh, the action by the House Ways and Means Committee and with the release of the Senate uh, proposal or Senate plan last week uh, that this is moving uh, at at rapid-fire pace right now. Uh, I think, you know, we were all excited about tax reform after the election last year. Uh, We thought that it was going to move a little bit faster uh, than it did, but here it is now, finally, and, uh, man, is it going fast. So uh, can you help us understand or take us through uh, exactly what may happen over the, the coming weeks and months, uh, and, and we'll pause after that and then go through uh, maybe some considerations that uh, a company or corporation business may, uh, may need to take uh, as they really seek to evaluate all of these proposals. Yeah, Justin, it is moving fast. As Kathy mentioned, the House may vote this week on the bill we saw from the House Ways and Means Committee. So as uh, uh, expected, the House is saying Thursday will be the vote in the full House on the bill. Again, it could slip, but at least right now, it appears the votes are there, and it appears the bill won't have to be changed significantly. So we could see a vote this week by the House of Representatives, and they essentially will finish their stage then of this uh, of this process. The Senate Finance Committee is still working. Again, they have a lot of amendments to consider. They need to work through their process. They may have a vote this week. Again, it may slip into uh, to next week, but they expect on the Senate Finance side before Thanksgiving to have the bill out of committee. So by Thanksgiving, we should have a bill out of the Senate Finance Committee and a bill approved by the full House. Then we'll see the Senate take up the bill after Thanksgiving. And again, their hope is within just a week or two to pass their bill. Now, again, there'll be differences between the two, and then we need a process to get to an agreed bill. There are a couple of different ways it can go. They can go to what's called a conference where people are appointed from each of the chambers to sit down and work through the differences and then present the results back to each of the houses to vote on. That could be an extended process. That could take a couple of weeks. That could push this into next year. They could try a process that could go more quickly in which each of them, the House and the Senate, take up bills, make changes they think will be appealing not only to themselves but to the other chamber and ping-pong a bill back and forth. And that can be done in a matter of weeks. So it still is possible we can get a bill before year-end. It still could slip into the beginning of next year, but we are not off track yet for a bill agreed and signed by the President 
before year-end. Michael, uh, you mentioned the reconciliation process, and I think this is a really important point to kind of uh, stop and, and discuss a, a bit further. Uh, Kathy, clearly you were, uh, you know, or worked on the, in the Senate uh, and, and have a lot of experience with this process. Can you take us through a little bit more around uh, the, the, specifically the bird rule that is so important in the Senate and uh, with the reconciliation process? Yes, I will. The reconciliation process, of course, will allow the Senate to act more like the House and pass this on a simple majority basis. But the quid pro quo is that there's a couple rules, particularly the bird rules, that the bill has to satisfy before it can pass under the reconciliation process. And the two are, number one, every provision has to have kind of a purposeful revenue impact. And the second, which is going to be the real clincher here, is that the bill can't increase deficits after the 10-year revenue window. This bill, as it stands, the Senate bill, doesn't appear to have, you know, to be trending downward in its cost, so it doesn't appear that will satisfy that portion of the Bird Rule, which says you can't increase deficits, you know, in, in 2028 and beyond. So what needs to be done in the Finance Committee, and this is always done in committee, is the bill that we have, not only are we going to entertain amendments this week, Senate amendment process is always very active, we have 355 amendments filed. But in addition to these amendments, we're going to have to amend the bill to satisfy the long-term deficit impact. And that could be anything. Provisions could be made temporary, right? We can sunset provisions um, as we did for the Bush tax cuts, or we can add provisions at the very end of the window that will raise revenues to offset ongoing deficit impacts from bills from provisions that are already in here. And that is going to impact how the House views this bill, too. So it's... Um, that may be a thematic departure between the two bills. It's going to be very interesting. It does indeed sound very interesting. There's clearly a significant amount of moving parts. Uh, and as Kathy alluded to earlier, uh, you know, the dialing uh, in on the, the revenue uh, estimates from JCT will really be critical as, uh, as we look to, you know, what provisions are sunsetted, what provisions are made permanent, et cetera. But I think more importantly, or at least equally importantly, is, is really what should a, a corporation, what should a business be thinking about uh, today? Michael alluded to the fact that uh, we could see legislation before year-end. If, if that's the case, uh, certainly there would be uh, a number of uh, activities that a corporation uh, would need to, to execute around tax accounting and how it impacts their financial state. Statements. Uh, but Michael, maybe you can take us through some of the, uh, you know, some themes of what a client or, or I'm sorry, what a corporation should be uh, executing on today. Well, one of the things they have to think about is what may happen and when it may happen and what the effective date will be if it does happen. So uh, you not only have to focus on will we get a bill this year or next year, you have to look at the effective dates of particular provisions, both for substantive tax uh, planning and figuring out the effects of the bill on your tax uh, uh, charges for next year, but you also have to figure out, as you mentioned, Justin, what the financial statement impacts of this might be. If this gets signed before year-end, it's immediately uh, effective as far as taking in the financial statement effects. So if you have attributes on your financial statement, carry forwards of losses, credits, etc., and the rate does go down, and that rate goes down immediately, you have to take account of that on your financials. So think about that now. Think about what the effects uh, might be. If something like the Senate bill comes where we have a delay 
a year, let's say, in the rate coming down on the corporate side, then your calculations will be totally different, not only with respect to financial statements, but what you're going to do in that first year where you're going to have potentially a 35% rate and the ability to potentially use a lot of tax attributes that will be worth less in a 20% environment. So you got to think all that stuff through now. You can be up talking to people on the Hill if you have certain provisions that you'd like to see changed or come out one way versus uh, another. But I think the big thing is understanding the bill. And the best way to understand it is not just read through and try to figure out, you got to model this. you got to get down in the numbers. you got to talk to people who can set up what it is that you are doing now, what your results are on your financials, on your tax return. Use those numbers to figure out how it is that the various provisions will impact your tax bill and your operations, and then you can plan more effectively. Yeah, Michael, I think on last week's episode, uh, you you made three very distinct points, which I think you iterated here again, but I'd just like to, uh, you know, state it for clarification, you know, model. That is clearly the the most critical to understanding uh, the impact to your tax liability as well as uh, to uh, your business. Uh, plan, you know, think about that, that rate decrease, 35% to 20%, and uh, exactly what planning you may effectuate to uh, assist in your transition, and then influence, you know, getting back up on the hill uh, and talking about various provisions. So model, plan, influence, and then I think importantly we talked about today uh, really understanding the effects of tax, uh, uh, I'm sorry, of the accounting implications on your financial statements for all of these changes associated with uh, the tax reform legislation. So model, uh, Model, plan, influence, and then we'll throw in that extra one, understand the effects of financial statement. There is still time to influence this bill. Well, and I think I think those are all uh, really great forward-looking thoughts to end on today. And I guess if one thing is clear, it's going to be a really busy holiday season for all of us in the tax world. Uh, so I wanted to go ahead and thank you, Kathy, Michael, Justin, for joining us. I think this has been a really enlightening um, podcast and uh, a lot of things to consider moving forward. Join us next time as we continue to talk with tax professionals about the implications of what could be the biggest change to our tax code since 1986. Again, I'm your host, Allison Versprill. This has been Talking Tax. <laughs>